Yes? Okay, Jean, thank you for waiting. Dr. Allard won't be with us today because of an unforeseen family circumstance. So, I am going to do your ultrasound and your medication training. Okay, I, uh... Hmm, so my name is Kitty. Really? And I'll just ask that we put our legs up here. Yeah, okay. So we are on day one of our cycle or day two? Mm -hmm. Uh, let's Here we see. Go. Uh, <clears throat> day two, yeah, two. <clears throat> it's probably busy today because of the full moon, right? Hmm? Uh, don't most women cycles, I mean, are they affected by the moon? Yeah, I mean, probably. Everybody is starting right now, right? <laughs> okay, so we have two follicles on this side and okay. three Ooh. follicles on the right. Oh, great. Very nice. I will be right back and then we will continue on with the medication training process, okay? Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. If you've ever used IVF, this scene might sound familiar. It's pulled from a film written by the woman you're about to hear from and brings to light some of the weird and uncomfortable interactions you might have. But this woman's story goes way beyond her discomfort with the clinic. It goes beyond one or two failed attempts at pregnancy. It will take us into the depth of grief most of us will never have to experience. Yet, processing this harrowing time in her life yielded many artworks in the form of writing and film, a few of which I'll feature in this episode. And the difficult period did reach an endpoint, with a beautiful and totally unexpected gift. This is Mother's Project, a podcast that celebrates the relationship between motherhood and the creative work mothers do. I'm Ariel Lavery. And this is Jean. My name is Jean Villapeak. Um, my husband is Brian Finkelstein, and our son is Bruce Davis Finkelstein. Um, I am an actress, an improviser, a writer, and sometimes musician as well. Jean's theatrical interest started with an early education in the art. I got to see a little bit of theater. I lived in New Jersey growing up, and we got to New York a couple of times. I was very lucky in my high school to have a brilliant acting teacher who taught us um, not only uh, popular musicals, but uh, Spanish sort of comedy troupe style acting where there's a lot of improvisational elements, which I wanted to be doing Greece like everyone else in other high schools were doing. After high school, she went to Northwestern to study theater. So I auditioned for this show called The Meow Show and I got in. We did improv comedy, so short-form improv. Jean's friend told her that if she wanted to see a great show, she should go to Second City, a place she had never heard of before. I went to this historic theater, and on the, on the stairs on the way up, you see black and white pictures of, like, Bill Murray and all these legendary Gilda Radner and John Candy, and then you go see this show, and it's, it was just incredible. The show moved her to start studying improv at the I.O. Theater in Chicago. 
And you also um, practice failing, which is great because you know there's another show the next day and something else will be funny. And At the I.O., she honed her ability to move on past the moment of failure and look hopefully towards that next moment of comedic opportunity. But after I heard her whole story, I wondered if this set her up in a way for this epic series of fails that devoured six years of her life. I always wanted to have kids. I always thought I would. Jean was married young, but divorced when she was 30 and on her career path. I moved to New York from Chicago, and then I moved to L.A., I guess when I was around 36 or 37, then I was like, oh, I guess I'm getting um, older to meet this next partner and (laughs) have babies. She met Brian through the Upright Citizens Brigade, another improv school, and approached him after one of his solo performances. Love between them was quick, but practical. I think because we were older, it was like, hey, is this, are we, is this serious? Because if we just move in together, like, we need to kind of figure it out and get going. If we're going to kind of get married and have a family, we need, we can't just date and hang out for three years and then move in together or we're suddenly going to be 50 and uh, (laughs) retired. Jean had every confidence that they would be able to get pregnant and start having kids. She looked to her sister as an example. And she got pregnant for the first time at 40, so I figured it would be easy for me too. Jean and Brian were married in August of 2012. They had so much to look forward to, with plans to start growing their family immediately. I got pregnant pretty quickly. It was the first time I ever was like, oh, I have to figure out when I'm ovulating or try and make the most of it, you know. But I got pregnant fairly easily. I think January. Yeah, I think January I was pregnant. Like so many women pregnant for the first time, she wanted to do everything natural. I was seeing a midwife. I wanted to do things very, um, is holistically the right word? She ate all the right foods, stopped drinking coffee and alcohol, exercised, and everything seemed to be going along so well. She was closing in on the end of her first trimester, and they decided it was time to start making the announcement. We took a trip out to New York to tell our families. I started spotting when we were in New York. And then flew back, just terrified, went to bed, And then at like three or four in the morning, I woke up and was having this miscarriage. We were supposed to have our first ultrasound that week, like two days after we were getting back from New York. When going through a miscarriage, your doctor or midwife will tell you to rest and recuperate. Give your body the chance to recover. Every every cell in my body was like, bounce back, just bounce right back. I didn't understand that I needed to grieve the loss and have some mourning time and that my body had a lot of hormones shifting and changing and that 
there would be sort of vacuum, a lack of the positive surges that have been happening in my body. So, I mean, I went on an audition for something like two days later and my husband was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I, I'm not going to sit around feeling sorry for myself. And it was a disaster, of course. Of course, I cried all the time. So I wonder, was this like improv training coming back in a weird way? Telling her there would be another day to find the humor? Whatever it was, she did bounce back and looked forward to trying again. I got pregnant again maybe July. I stayed with the midwife because she was like, at your age, that happens. It's okay. You know, everything else was healthy. I was eating no sugar, drinking. No, I was being very, very careful. No coffee and exercising. And she was like, you know, it's probably just an egg issue. And then we were at a family wedding in Mexico. And it was, again, this was like 11 weeks instead of 12. But at the wedding, I went, was dancing and went to the bathroom and started spotting. And I was like, holy shit. Now I am in Mexico. <laughs> And I'm afraid I'm going to, you know, have a miscarriage in Mexico at the Hard Rock Cafe Hotel. I mean, it was just like, wow, the worst place to be for me. They made it home, and she had the miscarriage safely without any complications. After two or three successive miscarriages, an OB or midwife will often offer some medical intervention, like chromosome testing. So Jean decided to start seeing a doctor. My midwife recommended him, this guy, Dr. Wu, who since passed away. And he was this like magical OB who did all these deliveries. He was this legendary OB in Glendale. And, um, but he was like in his eighties. He was also like, this is just probably your age. It's okay. Everything seems okay. I mean, I know they ran tests and then I started to probably take progesterone. I can't really remember. I got pregnant again that fall. I was like, oh, three's a charm. I think that was like nine weeks or something. I didn't tell anybody. I miscarried again. And then I miscarried again in May because I remember that it was a year. The last time, which was the most awful, the same doctor, I started spotting and I, came in and he said, you're probably miscarrying, but there's nothing we can do. So collect the material and then we'll test it. So this is gruesome. I mean, I was, we had like these um, Ziploc containers, those like little plastic uh, leftovers containers. And I was passing this material into these containers, like five of them. It was just awful. And then I stood up and passed out and my husband was like, we're going to the emergency room. So we went to the emergency room with all this stuff and they did a DNC and we let, we gave them all the material and then they never got back to me. And I was too depressed to press and call back and say like, we gave you all those containers of horrible, you know, I just kind of let it go in a, in a denial and depressive state. That like feeling of letting it go was, did you kind of, know while you were in that state that you didn't want to try doing this anymore? Yes. So there it was. After two years, five miscarriages, Jean acknowledged that maybe this wasn't the healthiest thing for her to be doing to herself and her body. So Brian and Jean started thinking about another option. We started talking about trying IVF. Despite her luck, 
Jean was finding hope in the tools that were available with IVF. I knew, I knew that they could do chromosome testing on the embryos. They can monitor the process in such a better way, so I had hope about that. Renewed hope. One of our parents offered to help, so we just thought, like, there's, there's another opportunity and some hope. Let's give it a shot. So we went in July to that seminar, and then they don't really give you I, – I, I can't – it's very glossy. It's very salesy. They're really good at it. The, everyone in the room is edgy, so they're so calming, and they have a bunch of statistics, and they kind of gently tell you that – it's, it might not work at this age, but like 20% of the time it sort of works and 5% of the time it works and you just want to hear good news. So, Just so you know, Jean was throwing out statistics there not based on fact. I did look into the success rate of IVF and found that the CDC cannot even determine the national success rate of any assisted reproductive technology, but has determined that about 1.7% of babies are born using these technologies every year. The experience with IVF was so affecting, she started a blog where she could process everything she was going through, called IVFing, which I asked her to read from. We sat in an over-furnished room with five white middle-aged doctors introducing themselves in front of a giant alarming tropical fish tank. The trapped fish swam slowly back and forth while the doctors took turns congratulating the young egg freezers on their wisdom telling inspiring stories of babies born to almost elderly mothers, and finally walking us through the shitty truth. Charts and statistics that went either way up, not good, or way down, also not good, when the age was around mine, not 35. I felt competitive about it and hopeful. We could still do it. I'm young for my age. I'm a free spirit. I still don't color my hair. Something, something was the key to why this would work. We signed up. Two weeks later, I came back for my first visit. The medical lobby had three, no kidding, chandeliers and a cappuccino machine that made a Keurig look like camping equipment. It was so confusing. Gold white marble was the palette. The music in the background was Sean Colvin. I felt angry about the wasted money while simultaneously deeply comforted by memories of college roommates. It was like they asked an interior designer, can you soothe desperate women specifically aged 37 to 45? And that designer said, oh yes, my yes, I can. There's this lie, this sort of posh, fancy, elitist vibe there. And that's what IVF is. It is this privilege. It's pretty gross in that way. But I think I felt like not as... To me, that's all connected to this confidence and certainty, which I don't have as a human being. I don't know if I'll ever have. So it just made me feel more insecure and like, I don't have health insurance and I'm in this room full of these people. Like I was driving a 98 Toyota into this parking lot with like Mercedes, Mercedes, BMW, BMW. And I was like, you know, we were getting help to do it. And I was like, this is, I don't belong here. I don't, I don't enjoy being around a lot of fountains. I want like cozy cushions and some like macrame 
plant hangers or something, <laughs> like or wind chimes. <laughs> I want comfort or home feeling, not like we're all rich, right? But the hope mongering worked on her anyway. So they give you all these shots and then you your eggs mature and instead of just ovulating once, you you take this trigger shot, it's called, and like this special shot that makes you ovulate in exactly whatever, 18 hours or 23 hours or something. So then you go over to the clinic at that exact time and then they take all of the eggs. So they've kind of forced every egg that's there to develop. And um, uh, you go under and uh, it's a little, I guess it's surgical. When you wake up, there are all these beds next to each other, kind of like a surgery prep place or a I guess in an ER as well, where you just are separated by curtains. And I remember the doctor saying to the person next to us, like, we got 18, great, blah, 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 blah. Like, just like balloons. And and then takes a step, takes a breath and opens the curtain. He's like, great job, five eggs. And uh, I was like, oh, and immediately like, but she had 18. You know, it's like... <laughs> They fertilize the eggs, and then all five eggs fertilize. That's positive. I guess they're watched for like a week while you continue. You, you keep giving your body hormones like it's pregnant so that when they transfer the embryo into your body, your body thinks it's been holding an embryo the whole time. The last day they did the chromosome testing, and then you're supposed to just come in for this transfer. Then they say, do you want to transfer one or two? I don't think they would do three. And we were on the way over that morning, like, I don't know if we should do one or two or whatever. They got me ready and like put the cap and the little booties on. And they were like, oh wait, we forgot to do your consultation. And then they pulled me into this other office and were like, actually, um, we did the chromosome testing and none of them are viable, sorry. And I was like, what? Like, if you had these test results this morning, why didn't you call up? Like, why did we drive all the way out f far away and do all the, and get me dressed and all this stuff, you know? And that was such a shock to me. And I wish as an actress I could start sobbing that fast, but I just, like, sobbed. They thought this was the end their last chance. We started to drive home and I couldn't stop sobbing. I remember we got like sushi and beer and coffee, like everything you can eat while you're pregnant and bacon and just like ate all this food and cake. How else to reckon with the universe than to eat all the foods you're not allowed to while pregnant? fertility clinic reached out and they're like if you do want to try it again we can do like a half price like the grossest but even the grossest slimiest appeal to Jean's misery was enough to entice her and with family help again we did a second round i think we got who cares four eight eggs two eggs i don't know we got some eggs but again no success and if you do it three times we can do the, the third times a third of the price and again more hope 
But this time, the universe had something else to throw at her. And then on the third round, my dad, he thought he might have colon cancer. Like he thought he had had a blood clot and he fell or something and they weren't sure what it was, but my sister is really smart and a nurse practitioner was like, "It's, it's probably cancer. And he was getting ready to have a colonoscopy. When that happened, I had just started my third round and I did tell him about that. I was like, well, we're going through this because I thought it would give him some hope. Hope is healing, right? He then had a stroke. Gene's dad couldn't get the colonoscopy until he recovered from the stroke. And after having the stroke, the doctors had determined that the cancer was elsewhere in his body. All this happening while Jean was already into her third round of IVF. I was like three days away from taking this trigger shot. So the gravity of the situation and her father's worsening condition wasn't really hitting her. Like I had gone to my therapist and she was had heard all the details and she was like, I think your father is dying. And I was like, what? And I went, I, I came to the clinic and I was like, I, my dad's dying. I might have to go home. And she was like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, I don't know what to do either. Like, I just wanted someone to help me. And my sister was like, come home now. He's got it. He might have to go into hospice. The clinic told her she was free to abandon the cycle, but didn't offer any more than that. So she abandoned the cycle, flew to New Jersey, and met with her dad's doctors. They said he's got bile duct cancer. It was everywhere. Jean also wrote about the experience going through her father's death in another blog called Griefing. There were two hospice options, home or facility. The doctor said, where would you like to be? And my father took a breath with his eyes still closed and said, on the beach in Aruba? We all laughed. I mean, it was funny, but nobody needed to laugh like that room of people. So we really made a meal of it. I wonder if the couple behind the curtain made eye contact like yikes and shrugged. Or maybe they warmly pressed their hands together. Who cares about them? Despite abandoning an expensive IVF cycle, being hopped up on hormones, and facing yet another loss, Jean was able to have some laughter, find some humor during her father's last days. On January 21st, her father died. But the comedy of the situation didn't stop for Jean. And thank God my husband was there too, because he is so funny. He, he can really handle dark situations well. I mean, that, the nurse from hospice came to pronounce him dead. Like, she came in and was on oxygen or something. Like, I think she had a hard time breathing. And he was like, who, who is she to be a nurse? Like, because she was like, oh, I barely got to do this tour. But how, she, he was like, she, she's not healthy enough to even cross the room. Like, how is she, like... The hospice nurse went about her business, preparing the body for transport, and just continued the comedy routine. And accidentally pulled the needle that had been the morphine drip out, and then he started to just bleed. The body just, the blood started coming out. And she was like, oh no, oh no. And there's just a cute blood just going everywhere. It's like, this is, this is absurd, absurd. 
then the, these two undertakers came to take the body and it was like super short with a weird pencil mustache and super tall like lurch from the Adams and he was just like can you believe these clowns thank god we were able to laugh Hey listeners, if you're enjoying this episode, I'd love you to do me a favor after it's done. Go subscribe to this podcast in whatever app you're listening on and send the link to this episode to a friend. It would really help me out. Thanks. So let's recall that three years earlier, Jean was entering her first pregnancy still in the first year of marriage, and buoyant about all her future prospects. Five miscarriages, three IVF cycles, and a funeral later. So it was just unbelievable, the grief between the fact that I, my system was recovering from half egg stimulation, and then all of a sudden this like intense, fierce loss. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my life. (laughs) I've come to realize by this point that Jean's response to repeated tragedy isn't maybe a common response, but one unique to her. Especially because she still wanted to keep trying to get pregnant after this. Yeah, I feel like I was a hope junkie. Yeah, I feel like that's exactly what's making me think that like, well, if this happened, you know what that means? Like someone in your family dies, that's when you get pregnant. Like, you know, like third third time's a charm. Third time IVF is a charm. Like I just had so many uh, excuses, reasons for why it was going to work. So of course they came back to the clinic for the fourth time. Well, we came back and the, the clinic was like, listen, if you want to retry for a quarter of the price. More gross. And then I really thought like, well, dad died and his spirit is out there in the galaxy. Gonna help us. Like, I'm not a religious person, but I was like, something. There's got to be the timing of this. Like one loss is one gain. And this is the time. This is our last hope. And so jumping on the hope wagon once again. They harvested a couple more eggs. They did chromosome testing, and I don't know, four, three, or two were viable. But this time, they were a bit more careful with their exuberance. The morning came to go out, and my husband was like, we're calling them. And he was like, we want to know the results of the chromosome test before we drive out there. And she was like, oh, okay. Actually, none of them are viable. And I got on the phone. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much. And he was like, why are you apologizing to her? He's like, hang up. And then I started crying. That loss, I, I don't even remember what happened after that phone conversation, to be honest. I, I, we had so many like, well, I had a miscarriage. Let's have some sushi. Or we, we had this loss. Let's have this. And I really thought like, this is, this is it. Jean finally accepted that this whole cycle, the loss, the sushi, the loss, the wine, the loss, might need to end. Well, I already thought I had to hit rock bottom, so to keep finding deeper depths of the bottom of the rock was just like, fuck. 
I, I really, the grief spiral was huge. And um, I started playing Yahtzee by myself. This is a crazy thing, but I just started to go upstairs and like play old school Yahtzee for hours just to keep something going in my mind spinning. To give in to the grief and the failure would go against everything Jean knew. And there were early attempts at transforming the intense sadness into comedy. There was, there was a time when I was like, oh, I'm going to write a one-person show about this. And I read some stuff to my husband, who's like a brilliant solo show performer and writer. And I was like, this is so funny. I can't stop bleeding or just really horribly uncomfortable things. And he was like, I think you need some time. But with time, she has found a way to communicate some of these moments. There have been the blogs you heard her reading from and an independent movie called IVFing, which she wrote and starred in. In this clip, you get a sense of just how anxiety-producing it is to follow all the complicated steps. And remember, this is an expensive investment. So, ooh. Great, that'll do. Okay, this is your fall stick. You are going to set this pen to 250 milliliters. If you overshoot the dosage, don't worry, just rewind the pen. You're going to pull out one of the needles in here, pop it on top, and insert. Hmm? Uh, why is it clicking? Don't worry about it. There's a video online. You can go home. You can watch the video. It explains everything. Next is your Lupron. Very straightforward. 250 milliliters in a disposable syringe, day and night. Wait, and uh, the other ones I only take at night? The pharmacist will explain everything. The Lupron is day and night. The Folistim is the exact same time every night, along with the Menopore, which you can pre-mix, but make sure you keep it refrigerated at all times. I'm a little scared. The video is very clear. Okay, good luck to you. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Oh. Uh... <laughs> Despite Jean's propensity to move forward, onto the next thing after every fail or loss, she was not moving so quickly into the idea of adoption. I would have waited three or four years. I was like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to try anything. I felt hopeless. But Jean's husband wasn't going to wait. But fairly soon after, we did go to the adoption seminar, and I'm glad because that took two years. You may or may not be familiar with the process a potential parent has to go through to adopt. There are so many steps to complete. We started to make our profile and get the, you, you have to have these, this very, very thorough vetting thing done with a social worker called a home study, and we started doing that. And um... The home study is like an audit of your entire life. You have to submit all your personal documents, like birth certificates, marriage licenses, have multiple interviews and home visits, go through an extensive background check, get character references from people who know you, and more. Imagine if every potential parent had to go through this process. Anyway, Jean and Brian went to their first adoption seminar in August of 2016, and didn't get their profile and home study completed ready to be matched, until March of 2017. That might give you a sense of just how involved this process is. But now, Jean was ready. For our next hope junkie, 
carrot dangle in front of the donkey's nose. <laughs> but this time, there was one huge difference. She didn't have to hope that she might get a baby out of this. You, you will. Like, if it's not, it might not be the baby you think or the time or place you think, but you will have a baby. But before we get too far up in the clouds, let's just learn what actually happened. Jean and Brian were out there, ready to be matched with a birth mother in March of 2017. But nobody seemed to be swiping right, so to speak. You're putting yourself out there like a dating profile, and it's like, oh, God, a year and a half later, nobody picks us. We redid our pictures. We tried to do this, like, look happier, eat ice cream in the pictures. It did take a year and a half to get matched. But finally, they were. With a woman who already had kids, was now pregnant, going into her third trimester. Jean and Brian were thrilled to finally have something. But she had some, uh, like, legal issues and some trouble and might be moving. There were some, some issues that we were like, well, this is okay for us. It's not exactly what we had in mind, but um, we were so excited. We had already waited a year and a half. We had a phone call with this woman, and she was very young and very shy, and we were like, well, we don't really know what we're doing either. It's just an insane relationship to have with somebody. And we told her a little bit about ourselves, and she told us a little bit about herself. Then we kept texting back and forth, and she had some more troubles and stuff, and there were some weird red flags that went up, just some weird behaviors that came up that if I knew, I was like, if we tell our family this, they're going to say it's bad, but it's probably okay. She was due Janu- in January, maybe January 7th. We flew the day after Christmas that year to go meet her, and she had two kids, and, and we wanted him to have a relationship with her and his siblings and have it be as open as and connected as possible for everyone's health, happiness, self-esteem, and everything. So they scheduled a lunch for the families to meet. And the birth mother had a boyfriend with her and stuff, and we were like, oh, okay, he can come to lunch too, and hey, this is great, we're all going to just hang out and have lunch at this weird place. And the waitress spilled lemonade on her daughter, and we were like, god damn it, like everyone was so tense, and got in the car and just sobbed after that. Red flags were popping up all around. We, this text I got from her, we're like, well, I haven't told my mom yet. I think she's going to be so mad. And I was like, oh, no. How can you not tell your family that you're, you're placing your child? Like, this is going to be really hard. And I was like, we're lighting candles for you. I didn't know how to help her. So I was trying to be as supportive as possible without being too intrusive. And there's this whole thing of, like, it's your it's your body and it's your baby. Like, it, it, whatever you want whatever you feel is best for you, I'm here to support that. Jean was trying to figure out how to best support this mother, both emotionally and monetarily. You see, once adoptive parents are matched with a birth mother, they usually pay any medical, legal, and counseling expenses, as in this case, through the last trimester of the pregnancy. But the emotional support Jean was trying to give got harder and harder. It just got pretty rickety, the text back and forth. There was one day that was so bad that I said, don't communicate with me because we were supposed to get on a plane the next day she was gonna have a c-section and um I, I was at work I texted my husband when I got done and he was like just come home and he said she had the baby and he saw it on Facebook and was like I saw that she had the baby and decided to keep it wow she wrote that on Facebook and yeah 
Remember, Jean and Brian knew that they would walk away with a baby, because that's what everyone had told them. So maybe despite all the red flags, their expectation was that this was their baby. People had sent us gifts, so we had all this, like, a crib arriving and all this stuff, and we were like, I have no baby, full apartment. It had been two and a half years since they first went to the adoption seminar. That was two and a half years of getting vetted, getting matched, and then waiting for their baby to arrive. And now, who knows how many more months and years it would take to start all over again. They met with their lawyer the day after the birth. It was final. The mother was keeping her baby. The next day was Saturday. Time to fall back into old habits. Oh, well, now we're going to get sushi, get wine, get ice cream, get bacon, whatever. Packed and ready for their night of profligate eating, Jean returned home. When I got home, another caseworker called and was like, a baby was just born. Can you guys get to this hospital? And we were like, what? And we're like, who is this baby? Because usually you get all this information and there's all this like vetting and like we had no information and we were very wary because there are a lot of things that can go wrong or people can change their mind. And so we, we had a quick discussion not to tell anybody. And then Sunday morning, as soon as we could get to the hospital, we went there. And then we went up to the NICU where Bruce was and we saw him there. The lawyer was like, don't pick him up. Don't, you know, you're going to get very attached if you do that. And we immediately picked him up. We're like, (laughs) we love this baby, but we want to make sure he was healthy and okay. And the nurses in the NICU see a lot of sick babies. And he was in the NICU because his birth mother didn't want to have contact with him. She didn't want to know the gender and it was too upsetting for her. And she just wanted to place him. The nurses were like, this baby is so great. And he was just immediately content and healing he just felt like everything everything was okay he he was fine like he was almost taking care of us in the moment like you're gonna be okay i'm okay it's good and then like six hours later we got a car seat and drove home with him i mean it's so fast they finally had a baby in their home we were like, we have to tell everybody. We, this is real. This is real. Like, we have to text pictures. And our later on, our aunts and uncles were like, we thought you were kidding. Like, we thought it was... Because there was a picture of me holding a baby, and they were like, we thought this was a dark joke. So, six and a half years, five miscarriages, four failed IVFs, and the loss of her father later, Jean had her baby. I don't consider myself superstitious, and I'm not religious, but I feel like I always have to find a way to justify my difficult experiences. Like, I am enjoying this moment now because I went through all that hardship. So I asked Jean if this was true for her. A lot of people said, like, you wouldn't have met Bruce if all that other stuff didn't happen, and I feel like I could have fucking done without all that other stuff. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. If it was a couple of miscarriages or whatever, but, like, to have all of that and to have the other one, the adoption, fall through, it's like... The darkest, 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 darkest hour? I mean, Jesus.
so maybe not all the darkness in her life can be explained away somehow. But she lived through it, made some work, and in the end got this amazing gift of life from a baby who has embodied joy since the day he was born. From that day, Bruce has been a very happy, healthy, strong, and curious and bright baby. His first word was heart. I mean, he's just a very, like, magical, happy baby. So it did shifted focus from so much grief to so much joy. Before we go, I always like to ask mothers on this podcast how they think their creative training has helped them in motherhood. And I always get interesting and funny answers. And I think that's where improvisation has helped me so much because you can't plan ahead when you're improvising. You have to be in the moment and listen to what your partner says and build and respond to that. So here's this baby who needs this right now. So we'll do that and we'll build our our world and our schedule around what works best for him and us, You know what, what our needs are together. Um, well, Bruce has had a lot of hair since he was born. He was born with hair, and his hair's always been this phenomenon. When he was up to six months old, it just grew straight up. And it, it, it was long and just grew up. It was just this thing, and we used to take pictures of just his hair, post them on Instagram, because it was this, he's just this special phenomenon. But then finally, gravity had its way and started to go down. But we had to get a haircut at eight months or something, because it was really getting long and, I mean, my husband wanted him to have a little more of a rock and roll look, but I was like, he needs to see, you know, he, he doesn't know how to move it out of his eyes. So if he sees scissors in my hands, he looks at the scissors. So what I have just tried to follow his lead. And when he is, I, I carry the scissors around a lot, which sounds very <laughs> ominous. But um, when he finally finds a moment where he's concentrating I'll come up and cut like a little bit here or there and it's mostly uneven but every once in a while it catches up like I'll get the right side one day <laughs> I'll get a little bit of the bangs the next day and the next week I'll get the left side so that Sunday it looks great thanks for listening to this episode and thanks to Jean for sharing her story with me this episode was produced by me. I am also the creator of the show. If you have a story you want to share, please email me at mothersproject at mumsmake.com. That's mothersproject at mumsmake.com. You can follow updates at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mother's Project Podcast. Jean's film IVFing was produced by Gumption Pictures. Our theme song was written and produced by Matt Rowan. Other music was by A.A. Alto, The Blue Dot Sessions, The Green Orbs, and Quince's Moriera. As always, stay curious and stay resilient. <laughs> <laughs>